I hope you listened to the song that came just before this. What a perfect song to tee up our passage for today. I know that you are for me. I know that you will never forsake me in my weakness. Or in Paul's language for our, in our passage for today, if God is for us, who is against us? That is, if God Almighty is for us, who or what could possibly be against us in any way that matters? If God is for us, Whenever it is, wherever we are, whatever happens, whatever anyone says, whoever or whatever stands against us, we can hold our head high because he's by our side. And with him, Paul says, you're not just going to get by barely. You'll see. No, if you know Christ as your Savior, you are going to conquer overwhelmingly. Maybe this is a word especially for you today, given what you're up against. We're going to see today that it's especially for mothers, but also for many others. It's in the book of Romans, if you'll turn there. Romans uh, chapter 8. By the way, this being Mother's Day, I've got a present for you. Uh, you know the best advice I've seen for homeschooling mothers? You may have heard it yourself. You need to include in your curriculum honors laundry and AP vacuuming. <laughs> It could make a difference. But today's passage is going to make a far greater difference. We'll see, especially if you're a mother. Romans 8, and we'll be starting today uh, in verse 31. What then, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? To what things? Well, he's talking here about the greatest gifts of grace, and we've seen three of them so far, three of the four. It's like this symphonic celebration we've seen with four great movements. We've gone through all that Paul has, has to say about our identity, first and then second, our glory, then third, our destiny, all of which leads forced and forth and finally to our security. Again, Romans 8, starting in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then he goes on to talk about all the struggles of life, and he concludes it in verse 37 by saying, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. God's saying, whatever anyone says or does to you, whatever anyone says, uh, whatever happens to you, whatever's going on around you, it's you and me against the world, babe. So you're not just going to get by barely. No, in the end, you're going to conquer overwhelmingly. It's the fourth and final uh, greatest gift of grace that Paul celebrates. And again, it's our security, especially when you're opposed, as we'll see, and accused or even condemned. And all of us go through this in many different ways. For starters, Paul says, who can be against us? It's you and me when someone's against you, as God says here, when you feel opposed. That is, if God's not angry at you anymore, it doesn't matter how anyone else feels. Putting it another way, if God is cheering you on, who cares if the whole world is booing? 
You may crater right now when your husband gets mad at you or your wife does or your parents or your children act out against you. Or you may fear these things so much that you come out fighting when stuff like this happens. What you do in these situations and what you feel in the circumstances like this will turn on who you're really looking to, on how secure you are in the knowledge that God is for you. You know, I'll never forget a true story that James Dobson shared several years ago. He was skiing with his family in Mammoth, California, and they were in the parking lot in this assembly area where this flatbed truck would come to take the skiers to the slopes. While they were waiting, he noticed this young lady who was a little different, standing a little bit apart from the crowd. She happened to look at him, and when she did, he saw in her eyes what he called the unmistakable look of mental retardation. She was a teenager, and she was behaving in rather a, a strange way. She'd been for, facing the mountain where they would be uh, soon be skiing, and apparently she was so excited about going there that she kept saying, whomever, over and over again. Whomever, whomever, whomever. Dobson had worked with the developmentally disabled for years, and he said that he felt an instant tenderness for the girl when he saw her. But it was clear that the other skiers didn't exactly share his concern. He watched them glance in the direction of the girl, and then they'd take a step backwards and roll their eyes at each other as if to say, you know, who's the crazy? About that time, the truck arrived and everyone began climbing on. And when she got on, she just kept on saying, whomever, whomever, whomever. Once they all got on, she ended up all alone at the center of the flatbed because everyone was just kind of uh, get, trying to get away from her, hugging the rails as close as they could, as far away from her as they could get. She was alone, that is, except for a big man with a kind face who stood right next to her who, as it turns out, was her father. And here's what Dobson wrote. It was at that point that this man with a kind face did something I will never forget. He walked over to his daughter and wrapped his arms around her. He put his big hand on the back of her head and gently pressed it to his chest. Then he looked down at her lovingly and said, Yeah, babe, whomever. I must admit, said Dobson, that I had to turn my head to conceal the moisture from my eyes. You see, the father had seen the same rejection from the beautiful people that I had observed. He saw their smiles, their scorn. His act of love to the girl was only partially done for her benefit. The father was actually speaking to all of us. He was saying, yeah, it's true. My daughter is retarded. We can't hide that fact. She is very limited in ability. She won't sing the songs. She won't write the books. In fact, she's already out of school. We've done the best we could for her. But I want you to know something. This young lady is my girl, and I love her. She's the whole world to me. And I'm not ashamed to be identified with her. Yeah, babe. Whomever. It's you and me against the world. Can you get into that? Can you imagine that right now? You can if you've ever experienced anything like that. And we all have at one time or another. We feel that way sometimes about ourselves. Why don't you try to get into that if you need to? Have you ever been alone in the center of a flatbed truck, so to speak, with people backing away from you?
just close your eyes and imagine it's one of those times when you're really down on yourself maybe or someone's down on you and a man with a kind face walks over to you and he does something you'll never forget he walks over to you and lo and behold you're his daughter you're his son and he wraps his arms around you and he puts his big hand behind your head and gently presses it to his chest and he looks down at you and he says as God the Father is saying to you right now if you know Christ is your Savior yeah babe whom ever if God is for us who is against us just how for us is he? Well, Paul goes on to say this in the next verse, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The Phillips translation says, uh, how can we not trust such a God to give us with Christ everything else that we can need? Another translation, is there anything else that he wouldn't gladly and freely give to us or do for us? Because you see, God is really, really for you. So much so that far from ever having to worry that he'll turn against you, you've only just begun to see what he's going to do for you. You're not just going to get by barely. Oh no, you'll see in the end, you're going to conquer overwhelmingly. But then Paul looks at it from another angle. He says essentially that it's you and him against the world, not just when you're opposed, but when in particular you're accused. Verse 33, for who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. There are so many accusing tongues out there. And if you're anything like me, you can be your own worst enemy. We, 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 we can get so down on ourselves and the, the accuser of the brethren, and we know who he is, can make it far worse, who makes it his business to prosecute you whenever he gets a chance. And it can sound like gospel truth. He sure does that with me. Boy, can he build his case. The Holy Spirit convicts, but the devil accuses and condemns. And there's a world of difference between the two, and we need to know the difference. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that you can be excessively sorrowful over your sin. He says that sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, quick and clean. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You can get so down on yourself and the devil through you that it feels like death to the point that you feel paralyzed. Not repentance, but paralysis. It doesn't just prick your conscience. No, it harpoons your heart. We all know what that's like. And though he may be right in what he says, he's always dead wrong in how he says it. And can it lay you, you low or what? Look at how your kids turned out. Child abuser, hypocrite. You're, you're probably not even a Christian. If you were, they would have followed your example. Look at how unloving you were yesterday and you're presuming to speak on the love of God today. Huh. That paralyzed me earlier today. Liar, hypocrite, Pharisee. Divorced, 
Talk about used goods. No one who's worth having would ever want to marry you. You aborted your baby. That means you're a murderer and you've got blood on your hands and that stain is never going to go away. I don't need to tell you that Satan can really do a number on you. And by the way, if you did have an abortion, you're in good company because all of us did something far worse. We killed his son. Quicker than you can say, get thee behind me, Satan. He'll take a half-truth and turn it into a whole lie that sounds like the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so if that's all who I am, why even go on anymore? But then the Apostle Paul rides up like a, like a knight in shining armor and you hear the thunder of the truth against those, those, those snarls from the pit of hell. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who are you? To accuse one whom God has justified. Who, how dare you even point a finger? That's the message translation. The only one in the universe whose opinion matters, the judge of all the earth says you're okay fundamentally and not just okay because being justified, if you remember, means that no sooner had Christ died than the gavel came down and he pronounced you not guilty and waived the penalty and on top of that he gave you a new identity. Yeah, your sinful self, your sinful flesh still needs to be put to death, as Paul talks about in Romans 6. And yes, we need to come clean when we don't put it to death through a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But that ugly old man is no longer the real you in his eyes because God is the one who justifies. You've been justified with a whole new identity. And you can take that to the bank and that can have traction emotionally and you can put it on as a breastplate of righteousness when the devil tries to harpoon your heart yes I've done those things and that's not the half of it I deserve hell for it but in Christ I am forgiven and in Christ I'm a new person and Christ says I'll never be forsaken no matter what anyone says and I'm not going to give in to your agenda to be paralyzed you say, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. But there's more. It's you and him against the world, not only when you're opposed and not only when you're accused, but hardest of all sometimes when, you're, when you feel condemned. For who is the one who condemns? Verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who at this very moment, as it says in the Phillips translation, is sticking up for us. So who are you to condemn yourself? He's saying that Christ was condemned instead of you. So you'll never end up condemned in hell. And in the meantime, Paul goes on to talk about different kinds of tribulation, as we'll see next week. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, cord, by which, uh, by, uh, by which he means to say, though life may seem like hell on earth, no care compares to what you've been spared. 
And this is just the blink of a lie. And then it'll all be good. The worst that could happen, whether you're opposed or accused or condemned, is no big deal. Comparing what he saved you for and what he saved you from, all because you've been predestined, called, justified, and you will be glorified, all because it's me and you against the world. Oh, let it sink in. In all these things, Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us and wraps his arms around us. God only knows how accused and condemned mothers can feel. In some ways, it can be their lot, especially when your children don't turn out the way you hoped or maybe they did but they're gone now and and you feel guilty at how much you need them and they make you feel guilty too or they're still at home and they're saying you don't love me ever heard that accusation that condemnation talk about a harpoon in the heart Irma Bombeck heard that many times and she wrote about it in what's become a classic column she used to be a columnist as many of some of you know this is titled Mothers love kids till it hurts. You don't love me. How many times have your kids laid that one on you? How many times have you as a parent resisted the urge to tell them how much you do love them? Someday when my children are old enough to understand the logic that motivates a mother, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to say, I loved you enough to insist you buy a bike on your own money that we could afford and you couldn't. I loved you enough to be silent and let you discover your hand-picked Friend was a creep. I loved you enough to make you return the Milky Way with a bite out of it to the drugstore and confess I stole this. I loved you enough to stand over you for two hours while you cleaned your room, a job that would have taken me 15 minutes. I loved you enough to say, yeah, you can go to Disney World on Mother's Day. I loved you enough to admit that I was wrong and ask your forgiveness. I loved you enough to, uh, to ignore what every other mother did or said. I loved you enough to shove you off my lap to let go of your hand, to be mute to your pleas and insensitive to your demands so that you had to stand alone. I loved you enough to accept you for what you are, not what you, I wanted you to be. But most of all, I loved you enough to say no when you hated me for it. That was the hardest part of all. Oh yeah, mothers know about being opposed, accused, and condemned. Accusations come in many and varied ways, sometimes in funny ways. <laughs> a number of years ago, I was getting ready in the bathroom. Actually, this was like 30 years ago, one Sunday morning, and my son Jordan, who was six years old at the time, came up and took one look at me, and he said, he said, that's what you're going to go to church looking like? It was a running joke around the house, what I looked like in the morning, and I was having my normal bad hair day, which, of course, I don't have to worry about uh, anymore. I won't say anything more about that, but back, but back then, it was always a bad hair day until I wet my hair down in the shower, because when I got up, it was always sticking straight up, looking like what my kids uh, called a rat's nest, and I, uh, I wanted to have some fun that morning, so I said, yeah, I think I will go to church like this. What do you think? And he says this. He was six years old, he says, Dad, that would be illegal. Now, that was funny with me, a man, but not with you, a woman, 
not if you're a mom. If you are, you've probably, you're probably your own worst enemy when it comes to your appearance. It would probably be no exaggeration to say that when you look sometimes in the mirror in the morning, you feel deep down it's on the level of being huh, illegal. And those accusations have got to be some of the hardest of all when it feels like the whole society is bringing a charge against you, against your very body. I can hardly imagine what that would be like. It's like Philip Yancey said in Christianity Today, we choose girls of promising beauty, and then we starve them, we pad them, we carve them with a plastic surgeon's knife to transform them into supermodels who will then leave the less endowed women, that is 99% of the female population, with a permanent self-image crisis. This is not funny. Witness the age with grace movement. Baby boomers are getting older and the beauty brokers don't want to be left behind. And so this is one advertisement from Johnson & Johnson, introducing Affinity Shampoo for hair over 60. Now there's no age limit to looking good, as though that's everything. Ellen Goodman quoted that. She's another syndicated columnist. And she said, I, many of you can relate to this. And she said, the end result of all of this is that those of us who failed to look like Brooke Shields at 17, failed to look like Victoria Principal at 33, failed to look like Linda Evans at 42, can now fail to look like, at Sophia, like Sophia Lauren at 50. This is no joke. Women know what it's like to live under condemnation. But it's all so deceptive. These are all lies from the pit of hell that are harpooning your heart. Whenever you look in the mirror and think of whoever, Brooke Shields or Victoria Principal or Linda Evans or Beyonce or Taylor Swift or Martha Stewart or whoever it is today who you're failing to look like, whenever you look at yourself, never forget the truth of his love, that there's someone by your side and he's turning you away from the mirror and he wraps his round arms around you and he puts his big hands on the back of your head and he gently presses it to his chest. And he's saying, yeah, babe, whoever. Try to let this sink in. Yeah, babe, whoever. You don't need to diet to empty your stomach nearly as much as you need him to fill your cup. And then you'll believe what he says about beauty. What does he say? Matthew Henry summed it up in his classic commentary on the scripture. It's his commentary on Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord she shall be praised. Listen carefully. Outer beauty recommends none to God, nor is it any certain indication of wisdom and goodness. 
Indeed, there is often an impure, deformed soul lodged in a comely and beautiful body. This beauty is fading at best, but the love of God reigning in the heart, the fear of God, is the beauty of the soul. It recommends those who have it to the favor of God. It ravishes the heavenly bridegroom. It defies death itself and will last forever. For while death consumes the beauty of the body, it consummates the beauty of the soul, which will shine forever in glory. Julie and I have met a whole lot of you women, young and old, and we have seen that there is such beauty of the soul that will be consummated in glory. Don't accept the lies. You know, what Paul's doing here in a lot, he's playing the coach here in Romans 8. It's both for men and women. He's coaching us when he says in three different ways that God is for you when you're opposed, accused, or condemned. Through Paul, God's cheering us on. He's saying, we're together in all this. And so whatever anyone is saying or doing, whatever's happening around you, you can go for it. And what does that mean? Well, it's just like someone said to me when I was getting down on myself years ago. It was back in 1995 while I was pastoring in Estes Park. We'd been at the church there for just six months. In the next two years, God turned that church inside out so much that we changed the church's name from First Baptist Church to Mountain View Bible Fellowship, which is its name to this day. It was at the very beginning of all that, of a very difficult process, and some things had already happened, and far more difficult things were going to happen afterwards, which almost always happen when God does great things, though we didn't know it then because it was our first senior pastorate. And it's true for you too. It was a trial by fire, and we felt opposed, accused, and condemned. And so there was this pastor and his wife who were vacationing in Estes Park and they were visiting our church just for one Sunday. We got a lot of summer visitors up there. And at the end of the service, they came up and we got to talking and Julie and I confided with them about some that was going on. And it was a good conversation and we got a lot off our chest and I thought that was the end of it. But a week later, we got this note from Christ Community Church, I'll never forget it, in St. Charles, Illinois where he's still the senior pastor. It's dated August 17th, 1995. I read this to call attention to something that is equally true for all of you. That know Christ as your Savior who brings you to the Father. It came to us out of nowhere, like it was directly from him, out of the blue, at just the right time. Like maybe this sermon is coming to you, this passage from Romans 8. Dear Brian, it was good to meet you as one of your church's summer, summer visitors, especially to learn that we'd graduated the, the same year from Trinity Seminary. I'm prompted to write this for several reasons, but the main one is this. After speaking to both you and your wife, Sue and I came away with similar impressions, and I wanted to pass this on to you. We both sense that you guys are feeling more overawed by your situation than you need to be. 
I know what it's like to be in over my head. Our congregation has grown from zero to 1,600 plus in the last 10 years. And since then, by the way, it's grown to 5,000. I know what it's like to be in over my head, but I also know that God makes us more than adequate for the task that he gives us, difficult though it may be. Sue and I wanted to communicate to you our vote of confidence. God has called you there, and so you, in Christ's strength, have skills, communication ability, personal vulnerability, and vision to lead that church to great growth. And then he put this in capital letters. So go for it. May God richly bless you and your ministry that he might increase. Signed, Jim Nicodem. You know what I felt like after reading that letter? What I felt, what I hope you feel like. Because God wants to communicate his vote of confidence in you, as do I. God is for me, that's what I felt like. He has made me adequate for what he's called me to do. And it's true for you too. Not that we are adequate in ourselves, Paul said. To consider anything as coming from ourselves, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. But our adequacy is from God. And we did go for it. And in Christ's strength, God did great things. And each of you are adequate too. Each of you are just as gifted for what he's called you to do under you and all around you, wrapped around you. God is just as much for you. And I'm here to tell you today that the same letter could be written to you. Because in Christ's strength, having been justified by faith, you have the backing of Almighty God behind you and the power of God within you and the arms of the Father around you. And so you can stand tall and go for it. And so there you are. You've turned away from the mirror to face him and you're in his arms now and he's just said, yeah, babe, whomever. But before you go, before you go for it, and I'll give you some ideas how to do that. But before you do, you need to say something too. It would do you good to pray before you go out there again because Paul said earlier on in this chapter that because Christ is our Savior, because of all that he's done, we have not been given a spirit of fear. We've been given the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And so we can say with David this, you don't, and you can pray it with me, especially if you're a mother. This is his present for you today. But whoever you are, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is every woman's deepest desire, to be known by someone who loves them unconditionally, who can be known, all of you, and still be loved. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You searched out my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand on me. Sound familiar? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. 
I cannot attain to it. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I praise you, O God. Listen to this, women. Mothers, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then you can pray, I give thanks to you, O Lord, and I stand in awe of you. This is from day eight of 31 days of praise. Pray this with me, won't you? Marvelous are your works. Thank you that you uniquely designed and created me with care and precision. The same care and precision you used in creating the universe, that you formed me in love exactly to your specifications, that you embroidered me with great skill in my mother's womb. I'm grateful that my looks, my abilities, my personality are like a special picture frame in which you can portray your grace and beauty, your love, your strength, your faithfulness to the praise of your glory. I rejoice that you have gifted me for the special purposes you have in mind for my life. It is a, it's wonderful to know that you're not in the least bit dissatisfied with my inborn talents, my intelligence, aptitudes, appearance, and personality. For your hands have made me and fashioned me. I am one of your original masterpieces. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. And then you turn from his arms and you go for it. And just how do you do that? What does it mean when the rubber meets the road? Well, let me briefly conclude with this. It comes from another mother, from Mother Teresa, who was a believer. Before she opened her home for children in Calcutta, there was much opposition, many accusations, and outright condemnation. It went on year after year. But before and uh, both before and after she opened it. And so she had this engraved on one of the walls. This is what we can do firmly as he gently presses our head to his chest. It comes from one mother to another. People, she said, and I would add not to mention children, are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will turn some false friends, uh, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people, and I would add especially children maybe, will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world, give your family the best you have. And it may never be enough. Give them the best you've got anyway. You see, she concludes, in the final analysis, is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Which about sums it up, doesn't it? It's so simple. 
it all boils down to that. It's just between you and him. And he is all you need. Who says it's you and me against whomever, babe. And you're not just going to get by barely. No, through it all with me, as we'll see next week. In the final analysis, you're going to conquer overwhelmingly because it's me and you against the world. You know, one of the most powerful ways he lets his people know that they're not alone in the world is through his church. And one of the most powerful ways he does that through the church is when they're hungry and we give them something to eat as we meet their needs in practical ways, just like Christ taught, just like Mother Teresa did. Families are struggling these days, as many of you know, to pay bills, to put food on the table for their kids, but we can make a difference. And so this month we're doing a virtual food drive for the House of Neighborly Service um, that we've been ministering to for many years. Even small donations will help families who are struggling uh, in our community. And so you can give them a little, uh, uh, send them a check. You'll be hearing more about this in the next few weeks. I'm just planting the seed. So get ready. Get ready to go for it. <laughs>